is Hardwood Knox from Dan Valley. And without my fantabulous co-host this time, he called out sick at the last minute, not feeling too well, uh, Mr. Adam Prommel. We hope you feel better. Have a ton of mailbag questions to get to, though. And we also have just, I mean, there's a ton of, I want to talk about Damian Lillard. Um, we also have just a ton of final stuff to get to as well. So we'll we'll just hop on right in here. We'll start. I'll begin the questions that, and if anyone in the room has any questions or a speaker request, you can throw those in live as per usual. But we'll, we'll begin with all the NBA Finals questions, I think is probably just the best place to start. Uh, the Suns have lost three consecutive games after grabbing a 2-0 lead. Uh, and, you know, being within reach of winning games four and five, certainly game three was a, was a nightmare for them. They've lost three straight. They've not lost four straight all season, which is, you know, that's fine. But Milwaukee's only also lost once in the postseason at home. That is, you know, that's just going to be a tall task when you look at the way that they're, that they're really playing right now. So I'm going to go through the gamut here on the, the questions we have with finals before getting to some big picture stuff. Um, Frank Valoria asks, what defensive adjustments does coach Monty Williams need to make for the Suns to push the series to seven? Uh, there's another question here, and it was an excellent one that's related to this from Jake Weist. I hope I'm pronouncing that, pronouncing that correctly. He asks, do you think the Sun should stop doubling in the paint and just give up two points instead of the Bucks pushing it out for a wide-open three? Because last night they were knocking down the, the push-out threes. So those questions are obviously kind of tailored together. I would not stop double-teaming if I'm Phoenix. Milwaukee's still sub-35% for the series, and we've seen them struggle to hit threes for a lot of time during these playoffs. I think you can't let one game or even let's say 1.5 games, whatever it was, because it did seem like they caught fire a little bit towards the end of game four, uh, dictate the law of averages necessarily. At the same time, you might be worried that, hey, they were kind of below their mean to begin with. Um, They could be progressing towards it. I would like to point out that game five, insofar as I can remember during the playoffs, was the first time that the Bucks just had like, fantastic shot making and offensive performances from all three of their stars in Middleton, Drew Holiday and Giannis at the same time. It's always been two of them uh, or one of them. And Drew has been a big part of that in the sense that he hasn't been able to finish at the rim. We talked about that last week and his jumper wasn't falling too high a clip. So I wouldn't stop doubling. I mean, there are instances where you probably just, you don't need to. Um, I think two of the things that I noticed that I think they could try is when Giannis is catching the ball in open space. I know you don't want to bring DeAndre Ayton too far out, but I actually might be more aggressive in covering him there and sending another body at him because worst case scenario, you're just going to foul him. He's doing such a great job and specifically in game five, if he was just able to go through DeAndre Ayton in those situations, it might even be also something to consider when he's, when he's off the ball too, and just getting ready to move inside. I don't necessarily know how viable that is. You're going to put then your own defense into rotations a lot of time. And Giannis has done a fantastic job of, you know, this season, I feel like he's really improved as a passer and he's, kind of always making, or most of the time, I should say, making the right decisions in those situations. But I'm just going to be more aggressive um, going after Giannis. And I had thought and talked about this with a colleague of mine. I was wondering if, if they should give Jay Crowder more reps against him. But as my colleague then pointed out, then you're in a situation where you could pull DeAndre Ayton outside the paint. You're putting yourself in an even more um, larger disadvantage on the on the um, well, defensive glass and allowing the Bucks to get even more second chance points opportunities, you actually won in the last game the second point um, second chance points battle, which is a good sign. That leads me to the next point: you need to get your defense back, and it's 
there's probably more scientific things than that, than a better way to say that than I just did. But when you watched game five, it really felt like it could be just as simple to Phoenix's, hey, get your ass back in transition there. Just a lot of plays where it felt like Aiton and even Mikhail Bridges just weren't back um, as quickly as they should have been or where they should have been. And when you look at this three-game stretch, uh, you know, you were never going to win the the fast break battle here. Like that's, it's not a matter of stopping Milwaukee or slowing them down completely, but you need to make life difficult on them. They outscored the Suns uh, 52 to 18 in transition in the, uh, in these past three games, all losses for Phoenix, obviously they've also outscored them 57 to 32 in points off turnovers. And so, yeah, turnovers weren't the problem in game five, but you need to win some of those battles because you're almost guaranteed. You're not going to normally win the battles inside the paint. I know people like to harp at the lack of free throws on the Suns' part. Um, Their game has never been prided on getting to the rim. Like, yeah, you'd like to see DeAndre Ayton be more physical when he's going up, of course. Uh, Still, those are the battles on the margins you need to win, where in a game, like, when when both teams are making shots, they're both playing pretty well, that, to me, would make a huge difference. And so I don't know specifically what you can necessarily change defensively. I feel like a lot of this, you do have to credit Milwaukee for making tough shots, seeing Drew Holiday come alive, and then also just looking at their defense. But there are mistakes that I think you can limit on the offensive side. Like, again, making sure that you're getting back, not going for risky offensive rebounds if you're Torrey Craig. That can help you on the defensive end um, to specifically at least be in a better position to defend the Bucks in transition or keep them out of transition altogether and force them to go through those half-court motions a little bit more because they're still not a great half-court offense um, even when they're at their peak. And even if they're doing well in half court, and again, they did have their moments in game five, um, they're just they're going to be more dangerous if you're just just not set. So those are the things that I'm looking at if if I'm Phoenix defensively specifically. Noah said in the chat, it's Drew Holiday's been excellent defensively, makes me forget about his offensive inconsistencies. It's also very apparent that Phoenix has a lot of good wings, but ultimately inexperienced with transition transition defensive situations. The Drew Holiday point is great because I think, and Pelicans fans have talked about this, he's always been sort of an uneven offensive player, but he's also just been billed as this great two-way force because he is so good on defense. And there are not many players in the league. You could probably, maybe you need two hands to count them, uh, if that, who can have the game that he did in game five, even once. And that was, you know, given the stakes, just the setting, that was clearly the best game of Drew Holiday's career because you're defending either Devin Booker or Chris Paul for most of the game. You go 12 of 20 from the floor, three of six from three, 13 assists. You accounted for like, I think when I looked at it, it was 57 or 58 of the points that Milwaukee scored just by virtue of your own points. And then the points generated off assists, just a monstrous game from him, helping them navigate minutes when Giannis Attentacumpo wasn't off the floor um, or excuse me, when Giannis Attentacumpo was, was off the floor. He is, he's a great, he's a great player. And even if he's not, even if he's been as uneven as he is offensively, you know, people will talk about his contract in different terms now, but you need him on the floor just because of the defensive body of work. He has, it does seem like Chris Paul's left wrist might be bothering him, but he has, for long stretches at a time, put Chris Paul in a closet, locked it, and thrown away the key. And they're not, there are very few players on this planet that can do that. Um, another thing for Phoenix is they need to, and we don't have a question about this, so that's why I'm just leading right into it. Um, well, actually, we do kind of have, this is tangentially related to this, Kim asks, how can the Suns get back in a series? They are shooting so well. Historically, it seems that teams that shoot this well don't lose games in the playoffs. Uh, and Noah's final note on Drew Holiday is he had the highest offensive rating in Game 5, which was crazy. Uh, yeah, I mean, when you look at 
the way he played, it's not so crazy. But when you look at the way he played in all these other games, it absolutely is mind-blowing because he hasn't had that offensive consistency there. Um, but, yeah, so Kim basically asked, how can the Suns get back in this series? And they have been shooting so well. they got to find a way to start being more even against the Bucks during their one-star minutes. And over the last three games specifically, and let's even look at the last two because game three was a nightmare for them on just so many levels. But in games four and five in the um, – and it's not a long stretch, by the way, but in the 16 minutes that Chris Paul has played without Devin Booker on the floor, without, and this is 16 minutes, the Suns have been outscored by 22 points. They've been okay during the Devin Booker on his own stretches um, in 24 minutes through these two games. They're a plus six. That is – Look, it's not like statistically smacking you in the face. That's big time when you only have one of your stars on the court. And there have been some of those minutes where, you know, Milwaukee's going to always have one star on the court. And there have been stretches where some of those have been two. Um, maybe part of the game four returns where uh, Milwaukee was, or excuse me, where Milwaukee did outscore Phoenix by six points in 10 minutes when Chris Paul played on his own. Let's call them a solo time. Had to do with, well, you didn't need to pull Devin Booker to begin with. Uh, You know, being worried about him picking up his last foul is a little bit jumping the gun there. Um, You're not really in foul trouble until you're fouled out. Like, that's there's a school of thought that goes that way, and I think it's, you know, it's a fairly valid one. So I I don't know what necessarily the answer is. I definitely think that they're concerned about who is on the floor during those minutes. They have worked DeAndre Ayton to the bone when you look at the minutes that he's playing. Basically, probably to ensure that he's spread out across their best lineups where they have all their best players in, but also during the minutes where there's only one star there. Um, You're also in some of those minutes, you might be more inclined to give Devin Booker more of the starters alongside him than a, than, than with Chris Paul, where you might be leaning on him to carry more of the bench. Um, I think a big part of it too, is that just Chris Paul has clearly not been himself this series. He has been, you know, the past three games specifically too. He just hasn't been fantastic. Even when his numbers look okay. Uh, he's, there, look, there are moments on like game five where it felt like the Bucks were targeting him on defense, which is just, I know Chris Paul is 36 years old, but that's just not something that you expect to happen because CP3 has been a good defender his entire career. He was a good defender this year. He was an especially great help defender for Phoenix this year. So to see that is just like, holy crap, how far have we fallen? The minutes without Booker, though, is, I don't know, is the answer you just play Devin Booker all the time? And I'm not saying Devin Booker isn't an issue, and that will bring me my next thing is that, you know, I don't want to see Phoenix only have 18 transition points over a three-game span. I know that they like to be a little bit more methodical, and I actually don't think they've relied too much on Devin Booker isolation specifically, but they have reverted into watching him try to do things, or even Chris Paul try to do things too much. Credit the Bucks there. A lot of that has been when they've gone to full-court pressure, which has been quite often. Like, that's been able to throw Phoenix's offense sort of out of key. You can also look around at the the rest of Phoenix and yeah, they have all these in theory and I've touted their depth as anyone. So this is not me, you know, I'm being a hypocrite here a little bit, but they have a lot of talent up and down the roster. It's just not these guys that are necessarily bankable to put the ball on the floor. Your third best option to do that is Cameron Payne. His minutes are going to be forever limited because you're not playing three guards at the same time. And he hasn't really had like this incendiary finals anyway. Then Mikhail Bridges, I guess, is number four there. Like maybe you trust Jay Crowder a little. No, I wouldn't. But like he's just not. Mikhail Bridges has never been a player. He hitting off the dribble three in game five, but that's just never been his game. And like thirteen points on six shots is like very much a Mikhail Bridges offensive game. I would say that's sort of the the median for him. And so it's not you know where he's only taking four shots like he did in game four. It was I believe like that. Yeah, you could probably. But he's also not going to have all these game twos where he's dropping twenty seven and 
and taking a bunch of different looks. So I, I think you need to play with more, I don't want to say pace overall, but at least be a little bit more varied in your offense. And I think they were during the first two games. And I thought that's been things that they've done well during the playoffs a lot of this time is yeah. When Chris Paul first came back from his injury, maybe that's still lingering effects. He kind of slowed down or came back from COVID, excuse me. He did sort of slow down the offense, but I thought they've done a good job overall, not recently of varying up their paces and at least getting into semi transition, putting some extra pressure on the, the Bucks defense there. Uh, you need to do more of that because part of the way you're going to not beat Milwaukee in transition, but hang with them is yes, get back on defense and don't, again, don't chance these offensive rebounds. If you're Deandre Ayton or Torrey Craig looking at the wing specifically, but also get out and transition yourself to sort of bridge that, that gap. And I don't know if how capable necessarily they are of doing that for a full 48 minutes. I'm not telling them to play faster overall. I guess be more opportunistic is what I'm saying. And there are going to be chances there if you force the Bucks into a turnover, even though that's not something that Phoenix is going to do a ton. But more specifically, if there are missed shots, if Milwaukee's missing shots, like try, get, get up and go. Um, this isn't off an inbounds where I would still be a big proponent of if try and catch them off guard, inbound the ball quickly, get up the court. That's just not something that Phoenix is necessarily going to do. So off these live ball misses, really try and get after it then. And that will give your offense just a different feel to it at points. So, and, and look, you know, we go back to Phoenix's defense before, like they did a good job. I thought of keeping the bucks, like limiting their paint opportunities. I think a lot of that Jake uh, said in his question, um, doubling them. That's certainly a big part of it. And the bucks only had in five game five. I think they only had six free throw attempts. My mis- Oh no, they only had 17 free throw attempts, which is just like for, and maybe it was six in the second half or something, whatever ridiculous it was. And 11, those went to Giannis and he's four of 11 at the line on the road. So like you live with that. Um, they're going to win the paint battle, but I feel like the Suns defense has like made sure in game five specifically, they didn't get like torched in all those situations. So there's a lot going on here, but I do think varying the offensive pace is a, is a bigger way to one, just help overall. Um, and two, yeah, also ensure that just your offense is less predictable and you're not relying on, Hey, Devin Booker, go do stuff. Chris Paul, go do stuff. That is just going to be inherently easier to defend. And I do think they've leaned a lot more on Devin Booker in this series. Even though he hasn't spent a ton of time in isolation, but they've just, you know, you look at this back-to-back 40-point game, they've really needed every single point from him in those situations. You could talk about he needs to do more as a passer, but let's go back to game five. Like, all right, you need your teammates to hit shots and also just play better in uh, uh, play better overall on, on defense. I feel like that's where, you know, if, if you're Devin Booker, you're scoring all these points. Defense is not your MO, even though I think he's been solid on the ball this year. Um, down the stretch or for that, not really so much in the fourth quarter, I guess, because the Suns, that was, a, you know, they had a by and large good fourth quarter. But after the first quarter, like seeing so many people on Phoenix go cold um, outside of Devin Booker, that's, and, and look, Devin Booker took 33 shots to get to 40 points. Like he was high volume himself if he's not going to get to the foul line a ton. So there's a lot of trade off going here. But I think at least varying up the pace helps you overall. And then this brings me back to my initial point. In those Chris Paul alone minutes, I think it really helps you out there. Uh, and those have been problem minutes for Phoenix. The, the, past, the past three games, because they were outscored by 10 points when Paul played without Booker in game three. But there was some noise there where Booker didn't play at all in the fourth. I, I believe Chris Paul logged some time there. And the game got out of control by the end of it. So I don't know how much to read into the game three stuff. But the past two, certainly, that's been among the issues there. Uh, Jake also asked, did the Suns sell out in the second quarter by taking bad threes after leading by 16 damn points? 
I don't know if they sold out so much as you know we were just discussing. Their their offense is is too predictable right now. Where it's taking it's 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 just churning through too much time without doing much off the clock. Where you can watch an offensive possession and kind of feel like, well, how did we while away the past seventeen, eighteen, nineteen seconds? Where previously, in the first two games and through the playoffs overall, the Suns can just really kill you with their passing and guys who are cutting and the secondary cutters and the guys making the second passes. It almost feels like in some of these games, and game five, they did have a big lead, but it feels like you're settling down and playing to protect a lead rather than to win. And the, that's an issue overall, but I think probably the bigger issue with that is they haven't always had the lead in those situations. And so if you're trying to come back specifically, uh, you need to have that flow to your offense that they have had for all of this season and not just reverting into either one-on-one stuff or where there's not a ton of ball movement or just movement whatsoever and you're taking time off the clock without really going through all these actions to put Milwaukee's defense in rotation uh, or to do anything at all like off the ball or even whether it's on the ball so I I guess they I guess you could say they sold out I don't know if it's just them settling so much as okay did they go through their their offense properly enough or did they run it efficiently enough but no in that situation when you're up by 16 uh, it did feel like some of those mysteries created some of those transition opportunities for the Bucks, and I know I think Seth Partner at the Athletic has disproven that these, you know, l- these long misses lead to long rebounds, which lead, which lead to um, more transition opportunities. I don't know that I don't think that that's factually correct, but still in those situations, you're looking at it like, okay, they settled for this jump shot. There was a long rebound that they didn't have a chance at. They had two or three guys around the basket. Milwaukee collects the rebound, is able to go off and running. So your you're by attacking a little bit more or going for, you know, get going through your pick and rolls. Um, if Milwaukee's in drop and then taking those mid range jumpers, like those are just more structured part of your offense. You're probably able to get back a little bit better because you're, you're used to it. But this, what's really frustrating for me as someone who covers the league is that it's so tough for me to get a feel on this series to say, okay, what can Phoenix do better? And then, Will that actually make them win? Because I don't know if those adjustments... I think the Bucks made adjustments during the first two games, mid-game and game one, and then over to game two, and they still just lost. It's been that type of series where... It, I don't know if it's weird, but it's it's been definitely fun, but it's also left me with sort of a zero feel for... Yeah, I, you could have... Is it weird to me that Milwaukee shot fa- fairly poorly for most of game four and still won? No, you could have told me that they shot as well as they did in game five, and I still would have needed to ask the outcome of the game because I'm not sure that, yeah, you know what, it's awesome that they shot, made 14-3, shot 50% from three, over 60% on twos, but that's just been this type of series, and also you counter it with the Suns going 13 of 19 from beyond the arc. My God, uh, that's just absolutely wild. And that's when you're talking about like some of those threes in the second quarter. 19 three-point attempts is just not a lot in today's NBA. And so that comes back to... It wasn't so much an issue in this game. They Each team took 87 shots, but you're kind of looking at the field goal attempt discrepancy between some of these other games. And I think the Athletics' John Hollinger had mentioned this this too. That's going to be a problem. It doesn't matter. or it, well, I shouldn't say that. Let's not be hyperbolic there. It absolutely matters how efficient your, your offense is. But if you're going to just give up more shot attempts, and so let's, let's go to game four where Phoenix takes... 78 shots to Milwaukee's 97. That's a 19 field goal attempt discrepancy. There are going to be more opportunities. And it's even like, look at the three-point battle. The Bucks only 7 of 29, 24.1%. But Phoenix is only 7 of 23. That's 30.4%. Uh, but you're taking six less shots there, and it still opens the door for a way for Milwaukee to sort of 
even you out from the three-point line, you could say, and they have those, oh, those six misses, whatever. Because one, they're winning the second chance point, the second chance points battle in that game specifically. And then two, uh, we're taking so many other shots and more of them are coming from inside the arc that the, lower, that the law of volume there is going to work out in their favor. And there on most nights, the fact that to me, the field goal attempt discrepancy is such a big deal. And again, it wasn't in game five, but just game four is within Phoenix's reach. And that feels like a missed opportunity. They did have a fourth quarter lead there. Uh, is that they're going to lose the free throw battle on most nights here. And they did in game four, you're minus seven or minus 10 at the free throw line overall in attempts. And then you lose the free throw battle by eight points. So that's something, you know, that's a battle you're probably going to lose. Even when you, yes, it's cool that they won the, the rebounding battle in game five, I guess, but that's not a battle you're going to win consistently because you're not built to do it. Milwaukee's just so big. They're long. Um, they have that explosion that's headed at the rim. I mean, there was a play in game five. I don't, I don't know that I wouldn't call it necessarily a smart play, but it was late in the game. Yeah. Giannis misses a free throw and drew comes just blitzing in from the three point line to get the offensive rebound, keeps the possession alive. That ultimately helps out Milwaukee. They can take those risks and they still kind of have the personnel to get back in transition. I don't know if Phoenix has, and I'm not advocating for those risks. It seems necessarily, especially in as late in the game as it was at the time. I think it was inside 15 seconds or something ridiculous. But Drew was having the kind of game, that kind of game. So why not just roll the dice on yourself in that situation? But that this series just feels like it's going to be. You can. I don't even know if the term it on the margins is going to be the right term. But I actually might look more so at role players that come up huge at this point than any other big picture factors or looking at star performances specifically, because it does feel like that type of series where, yeah, you can identify what teams could do better um, in certain games, but it doesn't even necessarily mean that they're, they're going to win it. And that's sort of what I've meant. And that's what I've, the feel I've gotten from uh, this series so far. Carson asks, and again, if anyone has a question in the chat, you are free to, to get it off. Uh, but Jake uh, Car- Carson, excuse me, asks, do you consider Chris Paul to be a dirty player? That's an interesting question. I'm a very big Chris Paul advocate. So I dirty always feels strong. He feels more so opportunistic, bordering on at times reckless. And um, I see your speaker request, DeAndre. We'll get to you right after this this question. Um, I, I'm hesitant to call players dirty. Uh, he probably toes the line with it and crosses it at times. I view him more in just the Kyle Lowry terms where – He's going to make all of these questionable positions, and maybe I'm too close to it to where I've liked him too much, and I've, I've followed his career for so long, and I think he's just one of the greatest basketball players of all time. And I also get a kick out of the stuff like, you know, telling the refs that someone doesn't have their jersey tucked in or sort of goading players, uh, just trying to get in, inside their head. I love that, you know, needliness. Uh, so I'm it, ta- it would take a lot for me to call a player dirty. Would, do you think Patrick Beverly's a dirty player? Um, I would argue that he's a more extreme than Chris Paul when you're looking at the, the, you know, the physical ramifications of what he's done. Like he is far more reckless than a, than a CP three, I would argue, but we do have a speaker request from Deandre. So I'm going to give you the talking stick. How are you doing Deandre? Oh man, I'm, I'm pretty good. Pretty good. Thanks for having me up here. I'm sure. Do you have a, you have a question for me? Uh, yeah. Uh, about I was, I was I saw last night's game and that, that boy that was a good game I, I that was a good game but do you think do you really think the game was really lost in the second quarter or do you contribute other do you contribute that as far as like on the sun side 
toward going toward like the other things other than the second quarter? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, th- I think everyone can kind of point to the the stretch in the second quarter where, and thank you for asking the question, DeAndre. That was, that was a great question. Where Milwaukee had erased the 16-point lead or whatever it was, uh, less than halfway through the second, it felt like, and they were just bing, bang, boom on the offensive end. That's definitely the the stretch of the game where it feels like things got out of control. But it took a lot longer than just that stretch for the Suns to kind of settle down on offense even play smarter on defense. I think when you look at what they did defensively throughout that game, it felt it felt like, and this is, I don't want to be the yells at clouds person here, but it just felt like they were not fully engaged on defense for a, a huge chunk of game five. And then they kind of got to it um, in the fourth quarter. They were getting stops, but it seems like every time, that that's a little too little too late situation where they were hitting big shots. Um, they were playing fantastic defense. And sometimes Milwaukee would still even just hit shots um, after the, the Suns had played good defense. So, I it just feels like a situation where they're going to need to be more consistent with their defensive engagement for the length of the game. Especially, again, I said this at the top of the pod, but I want to reiterate it. Milwaukee's lost once at home all postseason. That's a tough place to go in there and win right now. So the other thing would be with offense that we've already talked about is it shouldn't take you. Yeah, there are going to be deviations. There are going to be dry spells, but it just felt like Phoenix's shot making was incredible, but they, they they're capable of getting back into it more quickly than they they actually did after looking at how how fast that second quarter lead just evaporated for them. I also do wonder when you're just looking at this personnel that they have available to them, uh, do they miss the Dario Sharks element of their team at all? I will not say he will be the reason that they lose this series. He, for anyone who's forgotten, he tore his ACL, um, so he is not available for the rest of this series. And I'll, I'm curious to see how much time he's going to wind up missing next season as well, but. They don't have a backup five. Like, Dario Charge was their backup five, and he was not great during the postseason this year, but at least gave you a backup five to turn to. And so now, unless you want to play Frank Kaminsky, which they do not, Frank Kaminsky did not play in game five, you're going with you're going without a center, where it's a Jay Crowder, Cameron Johnson, Mikhail Bridges lineup, or Torrey Craig is somehow involved in there. Uh, but also, Torrey Craig, he's been... So good offensively for the Suns since he came over, but there are going to be nights like he had in game five where he plays under nine minutes because he went after a couple of ill-advised offensive rebounds. He's shooting only you know, one of three from three and one of four from the floor overall. And so you're going to be more inclined to go with the, the offense-heavy lineups. But your rotation is just so finite now. And I think a big part of what the Suns have done this year, it's been a testament to their depth. And you're always going to shrink the rotations at this stage. But to not have that clear backup center where DeAndre Ayton is playing 45 minutes in game five, which is leave all your cards on the table. I totally get it. But when you're like the primary line of defense against Giannis Antetokounmpo, you would ideally like to get a few more blows than, you know, just take a beat than you did. It comes with the trade-off of Giannis played 41 minutes himself. That's still, if you wanted to mirror um, DeAndre Ayton's minutes alongside Giannis's, you still would have found a way to get him another four extra minutes of rest. I'm not even saying that that's the difference. I don't know that DeAndre Ayton is perfectly built to go up against Giannis. They've consciously made the decision that, yeah, he's going to put pressure on him on the basket, and if Giannis is the primary defender, you can leave that much space um, off him when he catches the ball on the perimeter because he's not a great shooter, and that allows DeAndre Ayton to stay close to the basket, where, despite his switchability on the perimeter, He's still just most effective around there because as a defensive anchor, it does seem like he's still, I talked about engagement before. It feels like he was, you know, not, not, not existent, but there were stretches in game five where it was just sort of like, 
like, eh, like what is DeAndre Ayton doing? And then you look and it's, oh, he had 20 and 10 and two blocks and you just didn't really feel him. Um, those games are weird from him. And now, by the way, 20, 10 and two blocks in the finals is, is great. So I don't want to take that away from him. But he still also sort of needs to learn like when to abandon the plays where it's if he has to move off of Giannis or if he has to, you know, help a little bit more, he might be too concerned with his own assignment. You know, in this case, if it's a Giannis or just being around the basket. So there and look, he's forgotten more about basketball than I will ever know about basketball. They're they're saddling him with a lot to not even have that different type of look where if you went with Sarich, that was a way for the Suns, and this is we're to, it's moving on to the offensive side of the ball now. That was a way all season they really upped their pace. And so I talked about playing with more of a varied pace. Dario Sharks lineups to the five, for the most part, were able to do that. And I don't know that he helps you. He, I, I shouldn't say I don't know. I do know he's not going to help you defensively in this series. But, like, the minutes where Giannis is off the court and you have to worry about, like, a Bobby Portis or a Brooke Lopez, uh, who's had some – Brooke Lopez has some really good moments in this series, and Bobby Portis had some really good moments in game five. His playing time has been all over the place. But, like, you can – figure out somewhere to put Sharks if you're that worried about his defense. And he's also more of a phys- more physical as a player, excuse me, than I think people credit him for. So just to have that different look, I think might have went a long way. But I don't know what else Monty Williams is necessarily supposed to do with his rotations at this point. Uh, it's, and he really narrowed it down in Game 5. Um, there were only six dudes that played 20 or more minutes in that. We saw Cameron Payne. He didn't even play 15 minutes. Craig played under nine and then Frank Kaminsky didn't see the floor and then other players who have not played also. So he had pretty much been working with a nine man rotation and he has shortened it to what feels like seven and a half players right now. And I just don't know what his other, other options are when you look at the the rest of this series. And I think some people will question the call of going back to game four when Booker was in foul trouble. Should you have actually pulled him there? Uh, I don't know. That's I wouldn't do that as the reason they lost this series, but there's been so many other opportunities for them, so I, I would not pinpoint it down to that. Next question here comes from Rome Naza asked, why does Booker get away with so many fouls? I don't know if he was referring to game four where Booker had like eight personals and only ended up with five. I've never thought that Devin Booker has gotten this improper whistle that there's been any impropriety there uh game four yeah there was probably two missed fouls on him but there was also a call i don't even think he should have gotten the fifth foul called on him that was very ticky tack uh i think it was pj tucker uh who he fouled in that moment so yeah that's just i i don't i don't know why i don't think he gets away with so many fouls if you have evidence to the contrary rome um please feel free to to get at me there I think we're moving off the finals with the rest of the questions that we have. So if anyone, we do have another finals related question, but it's not related to Suns Bucks. So if anyone has more of those questions, you can ask for a speaker question. You could throw those in the chat. Um, Ricardo Alvarez asks, what's the most points scored in a finals game for a player and team and total score? And then also the lowest, including the eventual MVP. Uh, I didn't have time to look up all six of these numbers, what it was, but I do have three of them. So the most points scored in the finals game on record uh, for a player is Elgin Baylor in 1962. as He was with the Lakers. He dropped 61 points. It is, as of right now, the only 60-point game ever in the finals. He played all 48 minutes, 22 of 46 from the floor. Um, all twos, obviously, in that era. That was before the, the three-point line. If you're just looking at um, what I found interesting, and I'm like surprised that it this hasn't that there aren't more of these. There are only six. This is including Baylor. 
six 50-point games in the finals. They're all different players. Uh, Bob Pettit had one in 1958, 50 points exactly. LeBron in 2018 dropped 51. Uh, Jerry West in 1969 dropped 53. MJ in 1993 dropped 55. Rick Barry also had 55 in 1967. And then, of course, we just mentioned Elgin Baylor. The most points on record scored in a finals game for a team uh, came in 1985 by the Lakers. They dropped 148 points. Uh, that is, that's a lot of points. Uh, they're, you know, I, I don't really know what else to say. There, 148 points. Uh, they, I'm looking at the box score right now, and it was in regulation. I just want to make sure that there weren't like eight overtimes in that. So that, yeah, they they brutalized Boston, won 148 to 114. Uh, there have been five games in the finals where there have been 140 or more points scored. They all took place, by the way, uh, before the 90s. And then the final aspect of this is the fewest points ever scored by a team in the finals came in 1998. The, the Utah Jazz dropped 54 points against the Bulls and lost 96 to 54. Uh, that's, whew, that's rough. That's gross. 54 points in a finals game in 1998. A lot of the other ones that even cracked this list are from the 40s and the 50s. Uh, that's disgusting. That 54 points in 1998 is gross. Uh, thank you for that question, though, uh, Ricardo. Uh, I found it to be fascinating. Let's see. Da, 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 da. Hoop in- Informatics asks, what's the most underrated skill a modern-day NBA player needs to have? That is so interesting of a question, and I gave it a lot of thought, and I think I land on being able to put the ball on the floor independent of being an initiator or a facilitator. And kind of what I mean by this might be the Mikael Bridges role is someone who is viewed as this three and D guy, but he does so much more and the the cutting aspect of it for sure. But he is able to attack closeouts. He is able to dribble into these pull up mid range jumpers. Now he is able to just put the ball on the floor and drive. Uh, I think that opens up more avenues. One to score puts more pressure on defenses. And then by extension makes that player and the team overall tougher to defend. And I actually do think it elevates the value of a player's game. And so two, two other examples I'll give. And so Mikael Bridges is part of this, but it feels like his growth there has been, I don't want to say more, orga- more gradual, let's say, where it's been budding for like the past, you know, over the past two or three years. Look at Doug McDermott this season. Was, abs- was an absolute lightning rod for Indiana's offense. Someone who's always been a pretty good cutter, but mostly just known as a shooter. He could do it in motion, but he really was able, he by far and away averaged more drives per game than he did in any other season for his career. And it opened up things for him. His offensive value, just a great deal. He shot over 60% on twos, just one of the most efficient scores in the league from beyond the arc. And no, he wasn't taking these pull-up jumpers, but the ability to attack those open spaces to where you're either a going to get looks at the basket or you could drop it off to a teammate and maybe they're scoring or maybe they're making a second pass uh, or it could be a third pass in that situation, depending on how McDermott is attacking. And then even look at an OG Ananobi in Toronto, the past two seasons specifically, someone who can really attack closeouts, uh, someone who can, you don't want to say generate his own offense from scratch because that's just never going to be his game, but he's so much more valuable because you can't just expect him to shoot only three pointers. Uh, it's just not something that that you're going to get away with and still be an elite offensive player. You're going to be an elite shooter. You could be a highly valuable player. But being able to put the ball on the floor, attack closeouts, even if your role on offense is more niche, more of a specialty role, 
I think that is, you know, one of the single most underrated skills that don't get talked about enough. Everyone wants to look at off the dribble shot making. Um, they want a pure point guard or someone who initiate pick and rolls. They want a big who can space the floor, um, or they just want a shot blocking floor spacer in general. They want you to be switchable on defense. And obviously all that stuff matters, but more of something understated like that, where against an NBA defense, by the way, because we've seen in open gyms, what guys can do. You have Willie Cauley Stein just like draining threes in these, these open gym runs. So being able to put the ball on the floor against a set NBA defense, attack closeouts, not even just open spaces, but if they're coming at you aggressively, just be able to get them off kilter by attacking. Uh, Let's get to two more questions. One is about Damian Lillard. Has Dame requested a trade? So we'll, we'll hit that last, but Dr. Ramblings asks, where should the Denver Nuggets spend their limited resources this offseason, particularly in regard to scoring since Barton declined his option and Murray will be out at least half of next season? Yeah, um, I would expect Denver to try and retain Will Barton. He is uber important to their secondary playmaking now without Jamal Murray, who I think everyone does expect him to play next year. But how much time is he actually going to to see and what will he look like? Uh, he'll probably miss, I would think, like at least up until the All-Star break. And yeah, you do have Facundo Campazzo, you have Michael Porter Jr., you have Monte Morris. Just none of those guys come close to replacing both the combination of shot making and table setting. I'd probably argue that Will Barton might come closest. Michael Porter Jr. is definitely a facsimile close. Well, I shouldn't say that, but he can be a facsimile as a shot maker if you want him to hit off the dribble jumpers. But just as an initiator, as someone who's going to facilitate for others, that's not something you could do. And I'm not saying Will Barton is close to Jamal Murray on that level, but just the gap is smaller than it is when you look at what he can do as a shot maker or someone who attacks off drives, I think it's going to be really important that they bring him back. He had a $14.7 million player option that he declined. I don't know if he'll get the same average annual value on the open market, but when you look at NBA free agency, where I think you have to consider this proposal is Duncan Robinson, a top five free agent or top seven free agent right now, when that's the free agency class you're dealing with, there's going to be more money available to him over the long term, even with, you know, him having all these like, you know, injury scares over the past few years. Um, I'll be curious to see what he gets and where he lands. I can name teams that are, should be inclined to go after him with bigger money um, or throw him the full four years at the mid-level. Would a Memphis Grizzlies do that where they don't want to go star chasing, but they're willing to give their, they can get cap space if they want. I'm just assuming that they don't decline Justice Winslow's team option. But if you're willing to give him like the four and 48, I think is what the mid-level comes out to now, or four and 44, whatever it is with the raises caked in. Maybe Denver doesn't want to give that many years. Uh, can you get him? That that would be a team that that might need him. So I, if you don't have him, I don't know what your answer is because my point then would be, I think Jermichael Green opts in, in which case you have some wiggle room below the apron, but – and you have you do even if you you know you pencil Will Barton in here like you have some wiggle room beneath the tax it'll be close there's a chance there's a chance that Denver can use the full mid level exception and not pay the tax I'm just assuming I pay the tax that would be my advice to team governors billionaires but that's just a concern of a team that's in a market like that it's why people are wondering if Utah even after paying the tax this year will be afraid to resign Mike Conley because of how far into the tax they will be. Um, but if they can stay, or even if they're willing to dip into it a little bit and still stay below the apron, because they have almost $20 million in room below the apron, that's if you pencil in a $14.7 million salary for Will Barton. You have more wiggle room if he leaves outright, but you're not replacing him functionally with just the non-taxpayers mid-level, which this year, by the way, is valued at $9.8 million. And even if you do, you haven't really added to your team then because it's you've used the 
Emily to replace them. So ideally, the Nuggets would figure out a way or work up the gall um, or at least maintain the flexibility to re-sign Will Barton and use their full non-taxpayers mid-level exception. And in that case, if I'm them, I'm still skewing towards defense, wing defense for them. Um, I, I get that they need another creator, but just with the spending power that they have, they're not going to get that. I mean, if Goran Dragic's team option is declined in Miami, is he coming for the non-taxpayers mid-level? I mean, maybe, but he's kind of a health question mark himself. Uh, and he's going to give you next to nothing on defense. You're going to get way more on defense from Compazzo and Monte Morris. Yes, Dragic gives you more of that downhill element, can hit some shots off the dribble, but I just don't, like, what does that do for you? A Reggie Jackson would be interesting, but you also have to weigh the the fact of, okay, let's say the Clippers, they can pay him a little bit over $10 million to start. Let's say they're not willing to go long-term, and that's where your advantage is as a mid-level exception team in theory is that you could say, hey, we'll pay you for three or four years, and maybe LAC doesn't want to. I just Now you have Reggie Jackson there for three or four years with Jamal Murray coming back, with Monte Morris and Facundo Campazzo. Maybe there are trades you make. Monte Morris on a very reasonable three-year, $27 million extension beginning next season, so maybe you move him. But I just don't – you know, if there was a shot-making wing or playmaking wing, then yes that you can get with the non-taxpayers MLE. But spoiler alert, every single team in the league is looking for that type of player. I'd rather see you just go, if I'm the Nuggets, go after someone who is going to beef up your defense in some form or just a, a competent wing defender. And I'm not even saying that if, if some of the names that are out here, I don't think that they, in a nutshell, are all worth the full non-taxpayers MLE. And again, this is all. That's assuming the Nuggets can access it, which gets more difficult if you bring Barton back if Jermichael Green stays, and if you want to re-sign Paul Millsap, who is also a free agent. But some names that spring to mind, if you're on the lower end, let's just say you're bargain bin shopping, you're using the mini MLE, um, or you don't even want to use it because you're already in the tax because you kept Millsap or N. Barton or whatever. You could look at a, a Batum, an Otto Porter, Tony Snell. Like Those are all options that can help you. Um, I, I've long been an advocate of Josh Richardson on the Nuggets, I don't know if he's going to decline his player option. People have been all over the place with that. And I don't think he has already declined it to the best of my knowledge. If he declines it, I wonder what his market is. I'm sure there might be teams that are willing to pay him more in the short term. But if you're the Nuggets and you're willing to go like four years, three years at the full MLE, has his stock fallen that much that you might get a shot at him? Uh, He would be fantastic. You don't need a ton from him on offense. And if he does revert back to the offensive player he was, in Miami where he hinted at some off the dribble shot making he was making his threes while defending effectively positions one through four. You've hit the jackpot there. Aside from him, Reggie Bullock feels like he could help this team. I don't know if having the full mid level is going to be enough to get him out of New York. They have his early bird rights and then just all the cap space in the world. Should he cost that much? I thought a little bit about, Uh, Bruce Brown for this team, but he just seems better suited to play a big man's type role. Uh, And he, his fit is just so specific to Brooklyn. When you look at what he did do there, does Avery Bradley's team option get declined? Uh, I honestly don't know on Houston's part. He's sort of a lower end option at this point. I wouldn't use the full non-taxpayers MLE on him, but if you're working with the mini MLE, um, another thing that has to go into this, by the way, is if you want Austin rivers back in your Denver, that's going to cost you MLE money, unless he's just willing to come back for, for nothing at this point. Uh, but that might be a route to go. Uh, but Avery Bradley will at least give you some like more backcourt defense, and then in theory will hit enough threes off the catch. I don't know. Is he giving you? Is he a defensive upgrade 
enough over Morris and Vacuda Campazzo. I don't know. It feels like he can play bigger, but he is, what is he, 6'2"? I think he is 6'3". Like, he's not guarding all these small forwards or, or true wings or, or power wings. And, yeah, he's, he's 6'2". So that would be a name that they could look at. Um, Sterling Brown would be another one. Uh, feels like someone who's just been long underrated, had a great season in Houston this year. So you could take a look at him. It is a lot of lower-end options. That's the price range within which Denver's working. And then also just there aren't a ton of options there. I mean, do you look at it, you know, does Jeff Green help you? Is he want to leave Brooklyn? Uh, like the names just aren't so sexy if you're Denver. And so your best addition might come via the trade market if you're willing to trade one of your other point guards in Composo or Morris. You could trade this year's first-round pick after the draft. You have other stuff that might be intriguing to, to teams. I'll tell you what I'd really love for this team, but I just don't think that, again, assuming Denver can have the full mid-level exception, I don't think that type of an offer sheet gets him away from his current team. I would love Alex Caruso in Denver. That feels like the type of player that would be a fantastic fit for them. Uh, but yeah, so that's 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 where I'm at on Denver. I don't think that they're... I would skew towards defense, though, and the wing spots if I'm Denver and using whatever my best spending tool winds up being. I'm not trying to replace more creation uh, you know, with that tool. I, I just like, even like Devontae Graham, like, yeah, that's a great stopgap, but he's probably going to cost more in my opinion. And then what happens like when Jamal Murray comes back? I would be curious to see, is there a way that they could work out a sign and trade for Spencer Dinwiddie? That's someone who could definitely play with Jamal Murray and will, I wouldn't say beef up, but gives you some optionality defensively against, you know, some ones and twos, can play against some standstill threes. He's never been a great shooter, but just the downhill pressure he provides, that would be huge in Murray's absence. That's probably the highest end option I can envision them like brokering because Dinwiddie is so eminently expendable to Brooklyn that if they can get any compensation for him, is it a late first round pick? Is it, you know, do they want Jamichael Green if he opts in and stuff um, for Spencer Dinwiddie? You do have to match the money, of course, and that could get fairly complica- complicated if you're Denver, because now you don't have Barton's salary. Uh, so that's where it gets tough. You would need your Michael Green to opt in, and that's $7.6 million. You also have to view him as expendable, unless Brooklyn's interested in a double sign-in trade of Paul Millsap. But then Brooklyn, uh, I don't even envision that there's a feasible way for them to stay out of the under the apron next year. So sign-in trade is probably out for them. But if there is, if they can figure out a way to to make it work, where I think you at minimum, you probably need like 12 to $14 million to go out to Brooklyn in such a scenario to cover what Dinwiddie's going to earn in his next contract. If green opts in, it would be tight. Maybe you're willing to give up Aaron Gordon in that situation, but I still think he means a lot to this team defensively, even if you're not happy with the way his, his offense panned out. Uh, let's talk about this Damian Lillard stuff though. Uh, he, there was the report from true hoop that they expect him to request a trade in the coming days. Uh, Chris Haynes of Yahoo sports released an interview where Damian Lillard said everything but an actual trade request, it sounded like. And then he did come on the record after a Team USA practiced and demanded a trade to Nigeria because he didn't want to play with JaVale McGee uh, and Keldon Johnson. That, obviously, not true. But he said he did not request a trade. He basically said that his will to retire and win in Portland is still there. But he wants to see that they're doing, making moves, making strides in that direction. And so I think a lot of people feel like he's gone. If you're asking me to fast forward a year and a half, I might lean towards he's not important anymore. This season specifically, though, is harder to say that he'll ask for out 
maybe he will agitate that if Portland does nothing substantial over the offseason. But this feels like we're a year away from anything substantial. Now, that being said, I think a lot of the school of thought is if Damian Lillard requests out, why are you trading him? If you're Portland, force him to, well, not force him to stay, but he's under contract. You don't have to trade him. He, his deal spans another four years, player option on that fourth year, but it's a $48.8 million player option. He might exercise it or want to extend off it, depending on where he's at in his career. So you could, in theory, just keep Damian Lillard, even if he asked for a trade, and try and work it out this season. The problem with that is NBA teams are don't want to anger players or their representatives. They know other players around the league are watching and you want to develop a player friendly reputation. Should you be going after certain free agents trying to broker deals for guys who might hit free agency soon? And when it's Damian Lillard specifically, someone who has given thus far his entire career to the franchise, the city of Portland in general, been such a staple, so embedded into not even embedded into the culture, but one of the forefathers, of this culture, the, the author of the Blazers, let's say encore culture, because the front office culture culture is clearly shit dog shit there. It's if the the optics of not moving him, you'll still be the, the more maligned party in that situation, even though he signed a contract. And yeah, Dame's image will take somewhat of a hit from people who like to boil down basketball legacies and value to this of, Oh, he said he always wanted to stay in Portland. Here he is requesting a trade with four years left on his deal. The Blazers haven't exactly given him many reasons to stay at the moment, especially this offseason when you look at how everything was handled. The Blazers are still the team that's going to, the party that's going to come out smelling worse from all that if Damian Lillard requests a trade and they don't move him. Um, you could try and play the card of, well, hey, we'll try and salvage it for a year. And if it doesn't, that's when we'll move him. You don't want to deal with an unhappy star in the locker room for a year. That's going to dissuade other players from wanting to go there in general. Like, why do you want to go somewhere where Damian Lillard's not happy? It would be like a free agent. A, a bigger name free agent having, you know, Houston had the flexibility uh, to sign someone important. And they did in Christian Wood, but he's younger, was probably more interested in being the face of the franchise, but like an, a veteran impact free agent looking to contend signing with the Rockets last summer when the writing was on the wall there. So you, you're going to put yourself at a disadvantage. I'm not saying it's necessarily right on Damian Lillard's part there. I think he has every right to be frustrated because the Blazers when you look at teams like the Suns having made the swing on a Chris Paul trade, when you look at a team like the Raptors having gambled on Kawhi Leonard for that one year, when you look at a team like the Bucks going all in on a Drew Holiday trade, the Blazers have never done that for him. They've been willing to spend, um, including in 2016 free agency, where they signed just an absolute shit ton of terrible contracts, uh, but never they, they weren't signing stars in those situations. Yeah, they offered Chandler Parsons a ton of money. That would have turned out awful for them as it did for the Grizzlies and then when you look at trades like they've never made these big moves it's getting Yusuf Nurkic it's getting you know it's getting Norman Powell it's probably Norman Powell and Robert Covington are the two biggest trades that they've made during the Neil O'Shea era and while I I liked the Robert Covington move a lot and I was skeptical of the Norman Powell trade and it turns out that he was a better fit than I thought so I'll cop to being wrong for the most part on that how does that look when you're paying another player under 6'4"? Um, I think he's 6'3", or under, definitely under 6'5", if you have to pay him 15 or $16 million a year on top of paying Dame 39.4 and CJ 30.9 uh, next year. You are awfully small in that scenario, even if your offense is a firecracker. Still, those are the biggest moves that you've made. 
you've fallen short of going all in. And did they have the opportunity to get involved in the James Harden sweepstakes? I don't know. I don't know that they could have gotten a package together if it was C.J. McCollum, Anthony Simons, and all the first-round picks that they could have offered. Is that more attractive to Houston than what the Nets are offering? I don't know. Maybe if they think that they can reroute C.J. and get more assets off of him, potentially. But they haven't made that type of a move. They haven't even been involved when those players become available. And there's some like lingering sense of when the Blazers tried to get Carmelo Anthony to come to Portland in his prime, when he was a free agent trade target and he didn't want to go there. His preference was to OKC. Yeah. That stuff is outside of your control. And he eventually did go to Portland, obviously spent the past two seasons there. They still haven't made the all in move. And I, I don't know if that looks like, should they have traded CJ McCollum already? I've been a big proponent of them not busting up this backcourt for the longest time. There were built in excuses of, I mean, one, they did make the Western Conference Finals not too long ago, so I forget that. You could say that they read too much into that success. That is a very – that's factual, and if that happens, that's always the – the pres- that that's the ingrained danger of that scenario is then acting like you are a Conference Finals-worthy team when – were they? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. But it's probably dictated and informed their thinking since then, and that arguably could have set them back based off some of the other decisions they've made. They still haven't made the all-in play. And if you, as the front office, it is your job to make those difficult decisions. If you didn't want to trade CJ before now, again, I would understand it as someone who said that they shouldn't. And I will reiterate that his trade value is so complicated. He's about to be on a three-year, $100 million extension. That's expensive for someone who is, I think he's on the wrong side of 30 now. He might be age 29. I'll double-check on going at this point. He's also a non-star. You're not trading CJ McCollum on his own and getting an upgrade or not. This isn't like a star for star swap. The, he's 29. He turns 30 in September, by the way, for people who care. He, you need to attach stuff to him. And then what stuff? And then what are you getting? Because teams that are rebuilding aren't going to be interested in a 30-year-old on a $100 million contract. So it's almost like you need a third team involved. The closest you can come to building a, a swap type scenario where it might satisfy the needs of both teams is Ben Simmons for CJ McCollum. It still feels like Philly would be selling lower there. Um, and even if you include Robert Covington, should you be Portland? There are so few situations that you can spot out there. Yeah, maybe you could trade TJ McCollum to a team. Let, let's say the Knicks will be willing to take him into almost cap space or some very minimal salary out there and send you all the first-round picks, maybe uh, some of their young players in IQ and Toppin. That does nothing for you because you have Damian Lillard. And unless this is a post-Damian Lillard trade, you're not going to be waiting picks, prospects, caps relief, cap relief. And that's where it gets difficult with T.J. McCollum. Now, that being said, you've made all these other, let's say, singles and doubles types move. You've still shied away, it seems like, from going after the all-in one. I, I don't know specifically what that was. Could they have gotten in on the initial Paul George sweepstakes and is he already gone if that happens? It's like you have to go years back down the line here. They would be gambling on a player that didn't want to go to Portland if the, if you're making that trade. That's always the case with these teams. Could they have gotten involved on the Drew Holiday sweepstakes like Milwaukee did? Could they have gotten – no, nah, they, they shouldn't have gotten involved in the Chris Paul stuff. Him and Dame on a team would have been fun, but that's just a – that's a lot of overlap, even if you're getting rid of C.J. McCollum there. And that that's a small backcourt as well. So that's what I think he's looking for the org, from the organization in Dame. I feel like that's what this was, was him sort of letting off that warning shot by saying – I'm not requesting a trade right now, but I will if stuff isn't done. Whether that trade request comes this summer, midseason, or something he's willing to reevaluate after coming off of next season where it can really feel like he 
if you're Damian Lillard and want to spin it, that you gave everything to this franchise, you gave him adequate time. I, if I'm the Blazers, I don't know what the move is, but you have to explore it at this point. And I would say the best way to explore it is you're dangling CJ McCollum around the NBA, attaching whatever sweeteners you need. And are there different types of players that become available? There's, you know, Chris Middleton's not going to be available off Milwaukee at this point, but if Bradley Beal becomes available, do you make that swing? Um, are you even willing to make a deal where it's you're mortgaging more of your future with first round picks just to bring in a name? And maybe you are keeping CJ McCollum in that instance, it, you know, because you look at the trade landscape around the NBA right now, there's always a next star that's going to want to be moved. There's no like present one you stare at right now and say, oh, it's going to be him. I, I think everyone believes it's going to be Bradley Beal or it'll be Ben Simmons as a result of, excuse me, the fit in Milwaukee deteriorating. Maybe a Zach Levine is there. Is Zach Levine an upgrade over C.J. McCollum? No, he's younger, yes. But if you're trading C.J. McCollum in that deal and giving up stuff, I don't know how much you've actually upgraded your roster. Um, Bradley Beal is definitely better than C.J. McCollum when you look at him as a facilitator. So maybe that's something that you could look at. But you're at the point now where you need to show Dame that you're committed to the degree of we're going to make the all-in move that we have not. And that will take some patience because I think the trade market still needs to develop. Um, you need to see if Ben Simmons is even gettable. And, you know, we've talked about this in past episodes. I don't know that Ben Simmons is the cleanest fit. I really like him in Portland. That's one of the spots that I think he would be be great in. Aside from that, though, in the obvious names, yeah, there's the, there's the element of we need to wait and let this trade market develop. But I'm fascinated to see where this all leads over the offseason. I don't think that Dame has is, is necessarily headed towards that trade request. But I also want to reiterate that if it comes and you're the Blazers, you almost have to acquiesce because I don't know that anything good can – I'm not saying settle for the, the crappiest offer. You could do what the Spurs did too and send him somewhere he doesn't want to go. Um, that is your right as the team. But this situation is more tenuous than some people might have you believe where they think that Blazers have all the control. Dame has a lot of goodwill built up within that franchise, within that fan base, even after the Chauncey Billups, Jason Kidd debacle. So – it's it's on it's on them to either give him a reason to stay, which I don't think that they've done to this point. I think his point about them having not made um, the all-in play yet is is fair, and we've just seen it in the level of trades that they have made. Um, that's going to do it for us this week. If you've not subscribed to Hardwood Knox yet, please check us out on iTunes wherever else you're consuming your podcast. Find us on Twitter at Hardwood Knox. We're on YouTube under the name. Hardwood Knox. You can find us on Instagram at Hardwood underscore Knox. We appreciate everyone who joined us in Locker Room. Um, We look forward to talking to you guys next week, every Sunday, 4 p.m. Until next time, as always, leave you with a shout-out to the one, the only, Frank Neokina.